I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. Yet another controversy, another quagmire in the opioid arena. Opioid shortage for patients deemed to truly need opioids. To share his perspective, we're speaking with pain management and addiction specialist, Dr. Jay Kuchera. Jay received his MD from the University of Florida College of Medicine, completed a residency anesthesia, University of Miami. He's currently co-chair of the Substance Use Disorder Shared Interest Group at the American Academy of Pain Medicine. Thanks for joining us, Jay. Very glad to be here. Thank you. The opioid crisis. There's a lot of people trying to do what they think is the right thing to solve this, mitigate it. On the level of our Palm Beach County Medical Society Task Force, one of the lenses we've looked through since the very beginning is prevention, which early on largely kind of meant cutting back access to opioids, restricting the amount of prescriptions, et cetera, et cetera, with this concept that if there was less out there, there'd be less problem. We know there's been several CDC recommendations. There's been billion-dollar settlements against many of the players, there's been sanctions, doctors have been investigated. In terms of the original concept, there's been success here in terms of cutting down the supply of legal opioids. But as a pain management specialist, you're telling us there's been a huge unintended consequence. Could you elaborate? Absolutely. And this isn't just something that we see from our perch in the office here. This is data that is solidly backed up by observations. For instance, if you look at prescribing data from 2011 to 2018, we saw a 42% decrease in opioid prescriptions. But at that same time, total overdose deaths rose about threefold. Prescription overdose deaths, which was what our initial first target was to reduce those, they remained flat. Clearly, the concept that reducing access to opioids, reducing prescribing of opioids is going to lead to reduced mortality and morbidity is not playing out and it's flawed. How does this affect you in your clinical practice, obviously having less access to medications, and you deal as a pain medicine specialist with patients who have perhaps the most serious of pain problems. So pain medicine is in a particular jam. If you look at workforce, there's been between 200,000, 250,000 primary care workforce. Depends on how you slice it, but that's a rough approximation. There's only about 5,000 pain specialists. We looked at data that we collected from from 2012 to 2017, and looking at the burden per provider, if you will, we found that there was about an eight to tenfold increase in the number of opioid prescriptions, as well as the number of opioid prescriptions at 50 milligram morphine equivalent and 100 morphine equivalent versus the providers that were, say, in primary care and other specialties. How it affects us in pain medicine is particularly amplified and very problematic because now the pain medicine specialist is starting to collapse and pull out the opioid prescribing arena. So the reduction in opioid prescribing really first offset in the movement of those people that were no longer receiving opioids from a primary care doctor. And they were moving, migrating, fleeing, if you will, or being pushed into pain medicine and really overburdening and compressing that specialty. So it really has impacted us tremendously. And unfortunately, what impacts us is now very much impacting our patients and the families and our communities. One of the things that has always troubled me is that there is still the question of the proper diagnosis. Is this a pain issue that's legitimate? 
Or is it something else? Is it the desire to take a medication that takes you away from certain life stresses and problems and the like? In psychiatry, there is an old term that says that we have a problem with benzodiazepine hedonism versus benzodiazepine Calvinism. I like that. And I think some of that's happening in the pain world. I'd love your observations as to your perspective of what are you treating and is it changing? Are you being asked to do things that are different and just basically a continuation of what you were just talking about? Yes. This is yet another situation where I believe we can over-scientificate an issue in medicine. The concept of nociception, whether the experience of suffering requires a functioning cortex and awareness, it can get very complex, especially when you start talking about the ethics. Clearly, we have a duty to alleviate suffering. For instance, in a very specific instance, MRI. If you were to look at my MRI, it looks horrible. I have spondylolisthesis at L5-S1. I have foraminal collapse. It's, it's horrible. Yet, I'm pain-free, relatively. And then we have other individuals who can have relatively normal-looking MRIs, and yet they complain of pain. We're having trouble because if you look at just imaging itself, imaging does not give us a view as the molecular activity. It can get very complicated whether or not a patient is truly suffering. We need a scanner that picks up whether or not a patient's being truthful or not more sometimes than we need actual conventional imaging. This is a situation where the first thing we have to do is we have to accept the patient's report of their pain and their suffering as valid. Unfortunately, there's a lot of pressure on providers now to say, oh no, but look at your imaging. We're not going to treat your pain. We're not going to give you opioids because we're not seeing objective imaging and measures when really I don't believe that tells the whole story. The experience of pain, whether or not a patient is experiencing pain and suffering, has tremendous overlays from all different domains and whether or not they abuse and their resilience. And it just, it gets so multifactorial that it's almost impossible to say whether or not a patient is truly suffering or whether or not they've developed an opioid disorder. However, I would suggest that in either case, whether or not a patient has legitimate organic pain or whether or not they've developed an opioid disorder and are seeking opioids to treat like a, a spiritual kind of pain or a heartache, I truly believe the end result is the same. And we have an obligation to retain and treat these individuals rather than dismiss them. Either way, the patient either has legitimate pain or they've developed an opioid disorder and an opioid dependence. Either way, they deserve treatment. For you personally, would there be an algorithm where you might separate those two categories and treat them differently? The opioid disorder trumps the treatment of pain, and I think that's something that was established back in 1914 with Harrison. Even though there's a lot of overlap in neuroanatomy and neurophysiology between pain circuitry and addiction circuitry, we're seeing that it does require an elevated level of service and a different approach, I think, if you look at just pharmacologically, treating a person who's developed an opioid disorder with short-acting, potent, immediate-release preparations, that's just going to add fuel to the fire. 
There's a lot of very, very interesting discussion on that by, for instance, H.A. Manhapra on set points and, and maintaining a sense of like a homeostasis. We don't treat people differently or we should treat individuals differently that have developed an opioid disorder versus a condition that is being treated with opioids, a pain condition. One of the things that I saw was that with all of the regulatory oversight that's going on is that we have a sadly large number of people who are being undertreated. Really hard to help them adjust to the fact that they're not going to get a higher dose for whatever reason. And it doesn't automatically mean they're just addicted to it. As a psychiatrist, many people will come and say, I can't sleep. I'm anxious. I'm nervous. I'm scared. Why? Because the pain won't go away. And I'll ask him, how aggressive is your pain management doctor? He's afraid. Mm. I, I don't know what to say to them. I really don't know what to say to them. Again, your thoughts, please. So you kind of hit basically the heart of what is going on with this termed opiophobia in prescribers. We seem to be falling over ourselves to run away from opioid prescribing, and, and we're so uh, terrified for some good reason. But also, it seems like it's kind of become a little bit of the sky is falling and it's, it's turned into this cult of fear. And certainly, the billion-dollar successful actions against the opioid supply chain go to reinforce that fear. It definitely is a problem when we're, we are shying away from treating legitimate pain in such a manner. You voice frustration. Certainly, we have frustration also that patients who have undergone all kinds of interventions and procedures. They've had multiple back surgeries or spine surgeries. They've had spinal cord stimulators. They've trialed implanted drug delivery systems, so on and so forth. They're benefiting from an opioid and they are not manifesting signs of damage or a problem with their life because of it. And yet, they're having the opioid discontinued or reduced, or they're not able to continue care and they're suffering. I hear you. People are, are having trouble. I just had a patient today who was having trouble getting her opioid because of a, a supply instability. And she looked absolutely horrible. She really doesn't have an opioid disorder. But now she does. We're creating almost artificially this suffering where otherwise things would be okay. But for whatever systemic reasons, opioids are not getting to the patient. Now they are at increased risk for suicide, for other diseases of despair. Alcohol use is a problem. By the way, the CDC has declared 2022 the highest incidence of suicide ever. People do have problems and there is a lot of frustration. So you talk about opioid focus. Certainly amongst physicians and how many of these patients are now funneled out of primary care into pain management. Another area, though, is a supply chain. So as a pain management specialist who, by some terms, may say, well, he's aggressively treating them, but you have the credentials, you analyze the patient, you determine this is what they need, you have another problem, accessing the actual product. Yes. That is something that has really exploded. And that has become such a problem in the forefront. It's reached crisis proportions in the last three to six months. Opioid supply instability, like other pharmaceuticals, has been present forever. When the prescription opioid epidemic was announced around 2011, that started efforts to reduce opioid production. So DEA comes out with production quotas. So that's, that's been looming. But in the last three months to six months, we've seen a horrific instability, a new unprecedented instability in the opioid supply 
supply. And it seems that that timing lines up with the action in the state of Florida. Our Attorney General, Ashley Moody, and the state of Florida filed a $3.2 billion action against the distributors and pharmacies. And that was within the last year over in Pasco County. I believe that was such a hit to opioid supply chain that greatly destabilized the opioid supply. And now we're seeing these almost catastrophic, if you will, losses of opioid supply, especially in areas that are isolated. And it only has a handful of pharmacies. For instance, one of the pharmacies will say, oh, we have absolutely nothing anymore but tramadol. Well, you can't keep somebody going that's been on 150 or 180, 200 morphine equivalent of opioid on tramadol. And they just say, we simply don't have anything else. This has gotten to be such a problem that we are spending an inordinate, just overwhelming amount of time trying to figure out how we can get patients to a pharmacy that will be able to continue their treatment. But the real problem there is the other pharmacies aren't taking new patients because they have to protect their opioid supply. We have many patients in the last few months that have literally been forced off of their opioid therapy, which is an absolutely horrible thing to do because that puts them in harm's way. This is indeed the instability in the opioid supply and the lack of a reliable opioid supply is a new emergent problem on top of the opiophobia or, or the reduced opioid prescribing by providers. The latest thing that has really thrown patients into a bad situation. Why do you think the shortage issues are here? We have that in other areas as well. Multiple layers of barriers starting with with manufacturing reductions in production quota. We saw externally applied limits on production. And then opioid manufacturers that got hit with very, very high dollar actions against them. So they're not going to be so willing to go out and produce opioid. The next layer of this is the insurance companies. And I think the third party payers really, in my opinion, are driving this more than we might realize. Look at cost analysis of long acting opioid preparations per patient. Long-acting opioid preparations over lifetime are extremely expensive. We're seeing payers that will pay all day long for high-risk medicines like Dilaudid for the Roxy 30s. These are one of the last things that you want to give the patients, but they're, they're very inexpensive and they seem to be tier one. Abuse deterrent formulations are very pricey. We have reductions in production. We have huge reductions in coverage. I often wonder if that 90 milligram morphine equivalent is more related to the breakpoint at which the cost of opioid therapy increases dramatically. Because scientifically, we have not found an inflection. A study from one of the Carolinas of, I think, 10 million, large, huge data set. And they were looking for inflections in mortality versus morphine milligram equivalent. The 90 milligram morphine equivalent seems to be more, but if you look at what happens, you can give immediate release like oxycodone 
up to 60, if you give 120 a month for a day, that's a 60 milligram morphine equivalent, 60 to 70, 80. But when you get above that, you start using long-acting opioid preparations. And that's where the cost increases. The CDC opioid guideline, I had conversations with the three authors, Deborah Dow and Tamara Hagerich and Roger Chow. It was clear that they really didn't write the guideline. That guideline had a host of individuals of experts that were contributors. And there was a tremendous amount of authorship that wasn't just the three of them. If you look at it, it really, there were a lot of strings being pulled. Which raises an interesting point, interesting perspective. It seems to me the physicians who are in pain management, where that's their expertise, have one perspective. And physicians who are in other arenas, also part of addiction and opioids, seem to have a completely different perspective. And if we tie that in to CDC recommendations in 2016, they came out with some pretty intense recommendations in terms of limiting the dosing, limiting the number of days to prescribe things, then revised in 2022 to loosen it just a little bit. But then we get some very influential physicians coming out saying that this is the worst thing possible to lower the guidelines. For instance, Ken Shepke, who we know, very well-respected physician, Palm Beach County, head of fire rescue, appointed by Governor DeSantis to be Florida Deputy Secretary of Health, writes an editorial, an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal chastising the CDC for lowering the guidelines. How do we feel as a physician? I, I guess he's not a pain specialist, but he's very esteemed way up there. And he comes out saying something that specifically the CDC is setting up softer guidelines is to quote what was in the editorial and tossing aside safety limits, saying this doesn't help the pain, but raises dramatically the risk of overdose and death. Right. How do you respond to that? Who's in the trenches taking care of these patients? Unfortunately, the translation of science into policy and into guidance is flawed for a number of reasons that are human factors. If you look at the risk gradient studies, if you look at the agency medical director group in 2015 that came out of, I think, Washington, and they drew upon four studies. If you look at Tara Gomes' data and you look at risk gradient, her data shows about a, a twofold increase in risk at 100 morphine equivalent and above versus, I think, done at all, which is 9, 10, 11-fold. The data is all over the place. I think if you want to drive an agenda, you know, unfortunately, I hate to say this, but making opioids look dangerous has gotten to be a very lucrative position. Florida has received more than just $3 billion out of the message that opioid therapy is unsupported scientifically, that the harms outweigh the benefits. And unfortunately, there is a large enough group of individuals, of experts, that are continuing that message that it's become very, very difficult to back away from. Florida's position and the letter that you mentioned, which, by the way, is posted on the DOH website. And a letter was sent to every physician in the state. Right. So Dr. Shepke's letter saying, now's not the time to give your patient opioids or to relax CDC guidelines. In that very same op-ed, they also talk about the efforts that Florida's making to address the opioid crisis. And I think that's laudable. I really appreciate what Florida is trying to do because it is a serious problem. But unfortunately, by even mentioning not to give opioids further solidifies and drives this dysfunctional and harmful, almost unethical, opiophobic position. I really would hope that we would back off 
it would be great if in that letter we saw something that mentioned the harms of forced involuntary opioid reduction, because that certainly is impacting a population that deserves to be supported, and they've become really marginalized, and that's the individual who's living with pain. All those individuals that are living with pain that are opioid dependent are being adversely impacted by those statements. To drop another name, we've got Andrew Kolodny, very high profile, Brandeis, runs a whole bunch of organizations now. Kolodny, psychiatrist, certified in addiction medicine, not pain management specialist. So to quote him in a recent article, he said the CDC, by lowering those recommendations, by loosening up a little bit, he says they're bowing to drug industry pressure. He says that the suicide of those patients who don't get their pain, that this is overstated. The research is actually paid for pharmaceutical industry. And to quote him, he says, the notion that there are patients losing access to an effective treatment and therefore they have no choice but to kill themselves because they're in so much pain, now that's a hoax. And it raises another very serious question because we all know that when someone is in chronic pain, there is a psychological component. And we do know that if we can properly treat the psychological component, sometimes we can reduce their pain and maybe even reduce the amount of medication that they need. That's a whole other enterprise that sometimes insurance pays for, sometimes not. I have to ask, you said there are 5,000 pain specialists in the United States. That's not a lot. That means most of the pain management is being done, and I assume by mostly well-intended internists and orthopedists and whomever. Are they not doing this with a sophisticated enough approach? Might that be part of the problem causing the problem that people are scared about? Am I completely off base on this? If you look at the biomedical model of healthcare delivery, even in primary care, but also in pain medicine, pain specialists, I don't know what percentage of them would be interventionalists, but a lot of them, and I know in our practice, we're all interventionalists. That means we do some kind of procedures. I think right now, if you look at parity and reimbursement, the cost incentive, the reimbursement favors intervention. So just medical management versus interventions and procedures is there's a disparity in reimbursement. In pain medicine, we're incentivized to do procedures. There is certainly multiple reasons why that, what you just mentioned, is existing. By the way, Andrew Clodney and I have had several conversations. I had a Zoom meeting with him maybe a year ago. I reach out to bounce some things off of him, not in so much thinking that there's going to be this great spirit of cooperation, but just so he can hear from the other side. I feel very fortunate to be able to have conversations with the man. And it seems like there are wheels turning where he does understand the other side. Unfortunately, though, Dr. Claudney is an example of an individual who gets incentivized, monetized by taking this position because he'll go and testify. So he'll be an expert witness in actions against opioids. There's reimbursement there. This whole anti-opioid movement has really gotten to be very lucrative and well-funded. And talk about how do you tell whether or not a patient has 
has legitimate pain or whether or not they've got secondary gain or they're taking opioid for another reason, how do you tell whether or not an expert or whether or not the whole fund of expertise is truly against opioids from a scientific reason or is there a secondary gain? There's a conflict of interest. It gets to be very problematic. It's not a really clean situation. And what has been your take on the perception of your patients when you tell them you need an opioid, you need higher dose? The general consensus these days seems to be the term that, that you used, opioid phobia, not just physicians, but on so many levels. And it's in the media. Just this week, you may have heard of the new series on Netflix called Painkiller, which three or four people mentioned that to me earlier in this week. It's, it's like a 10-part series. It is so melodramatic. You walk away from that thinking, how can anybody ever prescribe an opioid that's the worst thing possible? This is what the public is watching. And, you know, there's some truth, of course, to what's in those stories. But I don't know, you know, what, what damage is that message doing for people like yourself who are legitimately trying to help patients who are suffering? Yeah, number one in the United States right now, painkiller. And I watched some of it, and I would really like to see if they're going to come out with those messages. I believe they have a obligation to portray what happens when individuals are cut off from their, their opioid medications. And I don't know if you saw the first episode, but yeah. there is a mom, and she talks tragically about her son, I believe. The message there. I believe is really missing an important component. And that is, it wasn't the prescription opioid alone that led to the death of her son. It's also the way he was managed. How did the system manage him? If we were to look more closely at these pathways that to tragedy, we would see more and more. It might be quite a shock to see that he didn't need to die if he would have been retained and if he would have received higher level of service and more care. The story that I hear is a young individual has started on prescription opioids for a back injury. And by the way, this is not happening that much anymore at all. The traditional story is somebody gets a prescription, dental prescription in a 20-year-old, and they develop an opioid disorder. And once that disorder is recognized by the healthcare provider, out the door they go. It's really important for us to understand the duty that we have with individuals that develop an opioid dependence, prescription opioid dependence. We do what we can as healthcare providers to retain and treat. And right now, that fundamental critical concept is not being well supported in the system. I think that when we get complex cases, pain management, psychiatric, etc., it's treating the total number of domains that's at play in a person's life, and we don't. We become too narrow, and we miss important things. And not to just swap stories, I could not count, and I think most of my psychiatric colleagues could also not count, the number of times we see patients who are treated well-intended but inappropriately. It's done too often on the cheap, and then you run into problems. I think your observation is valid, and frankly, it's scary. But if they were to produce a dramatic series with that concept, it wouldn't be that popular. People might not be watching that. Mm. The, the thing that also disturbs me with some of these Hollywood productions is the takeaway message. Oh, now that we have fined Purdue billions of dollars and we've shut down that supply chain, we've solved the opioid crisis. That that's one of the conclusions. And the other one is, oh, never take an opioid. That's the worst thing in the world for you. How do you get them involved in proper pain management? 
How do you get them to have the right expectations? So someone knocks on your door, hi doc, help me. How do you approach it? It's a very difficult place to be because pain is such a negative experience and it really creates in individuals this desperation. I mean, it, it is terrible. We have probably 17 million Americans that are living with high impact pain. These individuals are desperate and they're looking for relief, understandably. That's one of the great drivers of, of behavior is avoidance of suffering. We're still, I think, deprogramming from the 1990s where the messaging there was, if you have pain, go to your provider and shame on them if they don't give you a prescription for opioids because that's what you need. So we all know the cover of Time magazine or the big media outlets that drove the agenda that very nicely fit in with also the opioid industry. And that is, if you have pain, take opioids. That's the solution. Now we have patients that are coming in and they still, I mean, let's face it, when we were in medical school, what was a, a pain pill? It was an oxycodone or hydrocodone. When I was in medical school, if you wanted to give somebody a pain medication, you gave them a, an opioid. And that's what the Porter and Jick letter came out, that famous letter that said that out of, I think, 11,000 people or something like that, there was only three, some ridiculously low downplayed risk of addiction. But now we're on the other side as providers, but the public still comes in and they want something for pain. The question of how to treat chronic pain is a complex one. There's all kinds of modalities. We have in the biomedical model, pharmacotherapies, there's a, a whole variety of pharmacotherapies, which by the way, can be really problematic. One of the big go-tos is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. But if you look at morbidity and mortality data for NSAIDs, it's really very sobering. And then you've got things like antidepressants, you know, you've got duloxetine, you've got gabapentinoids. Everything that we have comes with a downside. Of course, there's neuromodulation or, or spinal cord stimulators or you know, nerve stimulators, TENS, massage. There's all these complementary therapies. There's the surgeries and whatnot. But then we're looking at something that we're having a real shortage of in the United States, and that's behavioral pain therapies. They don't seem to work that well. I think we're, we have a cultural issue here in the United States. When I was in medical school, Jerry Modell was a contingent in this group that went to China to see if they could bring acupuncture back to the United States and use it in operative settings for operative anesthesia and so on and so forth. But what they found is the cultural difference. There's such a cultural difference between the Chinese and the Americans. We have different set of expectations. The cultural foundation here is one that really doesn't seem to lend itself towards the acceptance of suffering as much. It seems like we're more interested in immediate gratification, and we have bigger cars and drive faster and, and whatever we can do. And I think that translates also to expectations in, in pain treatment. But don't get me wrong, I don't like to suffer and I didn't like it when I had pain. A friend of ours is Jay and he died. He was a dentist. He ran the pain clinic at NYU. He evolved into, if I remember this correctly, that if you came to the clinic with a complaint of chronic dental pain, the first person you saw was a psychologist. He had marvelous success, and he told me privately that it wasn't what he wished, but it was better than he was used to before he had psychology, understanding the cultural issues and all those types of things that you refer to. It makes for an interesting balance that we need to have. And so I hear what you're saying. It's, um, it's not settled yet. As one of the physicians who appropriately 
is prescribing opioids for patients who need it. Are you a target of the DEA? Do they look and say, here's the guy who's writing an awful lot of this stuff. We better keep an eye on him. Are, are you a target? Or are you concerned about that? I'm friends with DEA. And I had a conversation with the director of DEA Diversion in Miami recently, and he took his post over from a woman there that I had a nice working relationship with. I just spoke to him, by the way, a couple of weeks ago. I introduced myself to him when I saw that he took his post. And I said, why don't you run my numbers? There was silence on the other end. And I said, you see where I'm at? I do feel potentially like I'm a target. And it's a very uncomfortable place to be. But I, I can't say I'm not going to take care of you. It's almost like Schindler when he said, I could have taken these cufflinks and I could have saved more people. When you start, when you get into a situation where you feel like the system's collapsing and you're trying to help a marginalized, vulnerable population, I put my interest aside. And this may very well be a very serious thing, but we're having such a collapse of opioid care around that, that I seem to be taking a lot of people into my lifeboat. I have faith. When I had that conversation with DEA and I asked them to look at what I was doing, I believe that we will be ultimately supported if what we're doing is well-documented and it's clear that we are practicing from a position of ethics and compassion. That's a tough call because there's been plenty of providers that have gone down that have found out that maybe the system is not quite so supportive. And then there's these egregious people that are just absolutely horrific, these really bad actors that really have done horrible things. But it's, it's a tough place. I do feel like people that are prescribing more are targets, but I also feel like there's such an awareness now of the problem of interrupted and forced reduction in opioid access or discontinuation of opioids that I think that we're starting to see support for that. I don't think we're going to get ever get to the place where primary care providers are going to be comfortable prescribing opioids again when they can send their patient to pain medicine. I think pain doctors do, they continue to be targets just because of the notoriety from back in the day with the pill mill was a pain clinic. But now we're taking a different kind of burden. But yes, it's, it's, it's very unnerving, but that's the, the way it is. I'm not going to be self-protective to the point where people, I think, are suffering. I can't do that. Good for you. Pain medicine specialist, Dr. Jay Guchera, thanks so much for joining us for this very important discussion. You're welcome. Thank you.